So I told you guys last week that we were going to kind of pull away from the lectionary since, you know, we've, we've come full circle in the three-year circle of the gospel readings. And then I was kicking around the idea in my mind of preaching through one of the epistles. And I was just, I was thinking to myself, I don't think I said it out loud, uh, that it was going to be 1 Thessalonians. And then to my surprise, it turns out that 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is one of the lectionary readings for today. Um, and I think it's so cool kind of when things like that happen that I hadn't noticed and had absolutely no way of planning. If for no other reason, then it means that in an ultimate sense, I really don't set the course of my own life. Uh, but that instead, it's just a small part of a greater story, of, of God's story. Uh, and he's the one who's crafting the plot. And he's writing the prose, and he's laying out the narrative long before he ever calls me onto the scene. Uh, and you're going to see a piece of that idea at work in today's scripture reading. This is just one of the many places that introduces the notion of God's sovereign choices at work in the lives of his people. And so we're going to be kicking off an expository series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Not because I decided, <laughs> evidently. Uh, if you don't know where that is, just if you find Colossians, go right. Uh, it's one of the New Testament epistles, the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to be reading to you uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, actually the whole chapter, for, uh, verses 1 to 10. Uh, and so listen for the voice of the Spirit. So Paul Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, your word has been read. It's about to be preached. And so, Lord, we ask you to lend us now your Holy Spirit to bring revelation, to penetrate our whole being, Lord, to allow us to see the wonderful things you have in store for us, even your Son, because it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so just by way of background because every good story of course has to have some background right um, the, the scene of this letter is is the great city of Thessalonica located uh, it's at the intersection of two major Roman roads one of them leading from Italy eastward uh, and the other one from the Danube to the Aegean Sea and so its location and its use as a seaport made it a very prominent city and it actually still is today and we also know that a church plant happened there. 
and we know who planted it and we know when. We know that it was the Apostle Paul because uh, the, the book of, of Acts chapter 17 tells us that Paul stopped there on his second missionary journey and that while he was there, that he preached in the local synagogue, which just happened to be the chief synagogue of the whole region. Uh, and that he proclaimed the gospel there for somewhere around three weeks uh, until he kind of found himself in a spot of trouble. When the Jews of the city became so enraged by his teaching about Jesus and they created such a riot they had to move south to Berea where he began preaching again. Except the Jews from Thessalonica decided he hadn't moved quite far enough and they followed him there, uh, creating another uprising until finally... Paul was sent on alone to Athens and then on to Corinth. And so it was from uh, the city of Corinth in the year about 50, 51 AD that he addressed the letter that I just read to you uh, to a newly minted church and a faithful but fledgling group of believers he had been forced to leave behind in Thessalonica, uh, only a few weeks old in Christ. And not only was this a letter uh, addressed to what at the time was a young church, it was one that was situated in an extremely dangerous world. In fact, within 20 years of receiving this epistle, uh, the city of Thessalonica and the whole region was engulfed in conflict and rebellion when the Roman army waged war against the Jews, culminating in the future emperor Titus laying siege to Jerusalem, sacking the city, destroying the temple and killing or taking captive thousands and thousands of Jewish people. Sound familiar? Uh, and so kind of like right now, the rumblings that would result in impending disaster were just under the surface when this letter was written. And we can kind of feel like that today, can't we? Uh, like there's a whole lot of stuff in the world that's just waiting to get even worse than it already is. Right? In fact, one biblical scholar said of all the centuries, ours is the most like the first century so that we can feel very close to this young church in Thessalonica. Because let's be honest, it's not hard to see that our world is not just in crisis, but at a potential inflection point on a whole lot of fronts. Right, we've got a nervous and jittery stock market. We've got a growing sense of cynicism and distrust in the political process on both sides. We have an increase in drug and alcohol dependency with all of its attended physical and mental toll in human lives. We've got amoral scientists now tinkering with our genetic makeup and, and the whole unknown of AI technology, all of which portend the frightening potential for a crisis looming on the horizon of our times. And then you add to that the now very, again, present threat of nuclear warfare on two fronts, not only in the Ukrainian theater, but if Iran decides to ramp up in the Middle East, and it's pretty clear that something terrible has the very real potential of happening. We are living in a world in crisis. And the danger of the collapse of Western civilization is a very real possibility. But having said all that, church, that should also give us the greatest hope. Because it was into that very same type of looming chaos that the seed of God's word was planted in the first century and the truth of the gospel took root in Thessalonica. And so there is no reason to doubt that God can and will do it again. Even if it means he decides to allow some of the walls of modernity to collapse in around us. Even if he decides to knock out some of the props of our secular culture to make it. 
and to set the seedbed. Because church, when God has a plan and a purpose, and he does, nothing in all creation is going to get in his way. And not only is nothing going to get in his way, but he's going to put the right people in the right places to accomplish those plans. And church, those plans and those purposes include you. In fact, in that same chapter in Acts 17 that tells us about Paul founding the church in Thessalonica, it tells us of God that he himself fixed beforehand the exact times and the limits of the places where all people would live. That's a pretty big statement. And that means you. Which is one of the other key elements of the Protestant Reformation, which is the recognition of not only God's sovereignty in creation, but of his specific election of individuals to salvation. Which, if you notice, is exactly what Paul said today when he wrote to the Thessalonians. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has what? Chosen, chosen you. He's chosen you. And I realize that, you know, just like some of the other topics we've discussed in this series, this, this idea can be equally fraught. But it's one that we absolutely cannot ignore because the Bible teaches it. And church, if the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God in salvation, then we really ought to want to know everything we can about it. And more importantly, about what it means to you and me personally. In fact, uh, in his book and teaching series, Chosen by God, Dr. R.C. Sproul goes so far as to say that no serious Christian can afford to ignore this important biblical doctrine, but instead should embrace God's initiative in salvation. Um, and I know, you know, like as soon as I say that, I can, can already hear the objections. Not, not likely from anyone in this room, certainly, but from out in the, the world of listeners that we have online. Like, well, well, you know, the doctrine of election isn't fair. Doesn't God give us free will? What about John 3.16? Or, or why would God save some and, and not all? In fact, I, I even heard a person say, so well, I can never believe in the doctrine of election because I do not believe that God brings some people kicking and screaming against their will into the kingdom while he excludes others who desperately want to be there. Uh, to which I say, great, because I don't believe that either. Uh, and that is not what the scripture teaches. Church, the Bible and Reformed theology, and in particular Calvinism, does not teach and never has taught that God brings people kicking and screaming into the kingdom or that God has ever excluded anyone who wanted to be there. Uh, but instead, the cardinal point of our Reformed doctrine of predestination rests instead on the biblical teaching and the truth of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and our subsequent spiritual death, so that now the Bible says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is, what? Not able. To understand them because they are spiritually discerned uh, and that means just exactly what it says that left to themselves the natural man or woman does not want christ and will never want christ unless or until the holy spirit plants a desire for christ in his heart and it's only then once that desire is planted that those who come to christ do not come kicking and screaming against their will instead they come because they want to come because their hearts and minds have been unblinded and now they can see the great love of God in the beauty of the gospel. And so they come because now they desire Jesus above everything else and nothing in the world could keep them away. 
One commentator said of this, they rush to the Savior, that being the whole point of God's irresistible grace in that their rebirth quickens someone to spiritual life in such a way that Jesus is now seen in his irresistible sweetness. And so what this means in a nutshell, and then I'll give you an example that I've used before a bunch in Sunday school uh, and Bible study. How, how, you know, sometimes when people think of this idea of election and of God's sovereignty in, in choosing us, as the Bible says, before the foundation of the world and of uh, God's sovereignty and salvation, po folks will picture people, uh, picture God standing in heaven in this big turnstile, right, in heaven and saying to various ones, yeah, yeah you, you can come, not, not you. And yeah, you over there, but not you. But church, the truth is exactly the polar opposite. The truth is that God is standing at the doorway of heaven with his arms open wide, inviting whosoever will come. But instead, every single person without Christ is running as hard and as far and as fast as they can in the opposite direction toward hell until God in his undeserved, unmerited, unconditional mercy graciously reaches out and stops this one and stops that one and stops one over here. And one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts and making them willing to come. That's why Bible teacher Mark Webb says of this, he says, election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there. But it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. And were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. And he finishes by saying, if you find yourself in hell, blame yourself as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God for it is entirely his work and to him alone belong all praise and glory for salvation is of the Lord and all of grace from start to finish. And, you know, brothers and sisters, if we're really honest with ourselves, even our own hearts tell us that God, that doctrine is true. Because, um, like, I know me, and, and I hope you know yourself. And, and I know that I was headed for hell before God reached out and got a hold of me, and I'll bet you know that's true of yourself as well. So really, then, the shocking thing is that God would love any of us and bring any of us to faith in Christ. But in his mercy through the cross, God saves those who deserve hell, and he sets us off on a brand new trajectory. He didn't just save us, but he gives us a purpose. Because church, God didn't choose to redeem you just so you could sit around and wait for your mansion over the hilltop. As fantastic as that's going to be. But instead, he chose and saved and predestined you to be right here, right now, at this time in the world and at this place on the planet. And so the truth is for you and me, guys, there's no better time to be alive. Because God planned you for here and now. Just like Paul explained to the Thessalonians in their time. Uh, and, that, and that's important. Because for them, just like it is for us, uh, it's super easy to get discouraged. It is super easy to get roped into believing that everything is awful. And that everything is against us. And that the whole thing is just about to fall apart. And all of that is true. But it's also true that God put you and me here to be a part of the story that he is telling in our generation. Uh, and part of that is on you. Part of that is participatory. 
And it's yours to win or lose. Yes, God chooses whom to save and he chooses whom to rescue. And he appoints us to justification before the bar of his law and in his court of heaven. But at the same time, he laid out good works for us to do. And it's your job, as the Bible says, to work them out. And so we need to ask ourselves, who do you want to be in the story that God is telling about Fairview Community Church of Zephyr Hills? Who, do you, who are you in that story? Are, are you the whiny, weaselly Dr. Smith? Are you the nosy Mrs. Kravitz? Are you perhaps the Eeyore of the bunch who isn't happy no matter whether it's sunny or cloudy? Or are you worm tongue whispering despair into the hearts of every King Theoden who will listen? Or instead, are you Joshua encouraging Moses and trusting God? Are you David the giant killer? Are you Beowulf liberating Denmark or St. George slaying the dragon? Because church, there are dragons to fight all around us. Amen. All around us in the physical world through all the things we see in the news and in all the difficulties we experience in our personal life. But they're also in the spiritual realm where the demonic forces operate from the shadows. And church, they are your dragons to rout and they are your demons to resist. And we are going to do it in the exact same way the Thessalonians did. By turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Amen. And church, that happens when by the work of the Holy Spirit, you discover something of the beauty and the glory and the greatness of God. And seeing that and wanting that, you're willing to forsake the cheap and tawdry things you've been trying to satisfy yourself with. And you turn instead to be the warriors for Christ that can help win this generation. Which leads me to my final point, and probably the next logical question is, how do you know if you're one of the elect? How do you know that God chose you out of all the millions of people alive on the planet at this moment? And it is possible to know. Paul said so. Uh, not so much about other people, because I can't see your heart and you can't see mine. I can't see anyone else's, neither can you. But you can know yourself. And Paul gives us one of the primary ways to know today in his letter to the Thessalonians, which is this, that you became imitators of the Lord. And so your heart becomes changed by the Spirit, which in turn awakens a hunger within you, and you begin to find yourself being, beginning to be drawn more and more toward God and the, the things he wants for his people to do, and you begin longing to be different. And you begin wanting to be more than you, than you are, and you begin finding yourself hating your own sin and that you have a want to change. And that the old affections of this world that once had such a tight hold on you no longer seem to have the same allure that they once used to have. And in their place you have a new love for the word of scripture. And for the message of the gospel and for the psalms and the hymns of the church. And that's exactly what happened when the good news came to Thessalonica. And the people began to, to feel inside themselves a desire to have this Jesus whom they were just hearing about for the very first time to come and rule and reign in their lives. And Paul told them, and by extension is telling us, that when those things begin to happen and when we respond the way that they did to God's gracious, loving call, that that is what revealed that they were the elect of God. And Paul goes on to detail how this happened. First, he said, our gospel came to you in word. Right? The, the scriptures were preached. 
The truth was declared. The Apostle Paul spoke to them about the promises of God in the Old Testament and how they had come to pass in Christ, and they couldn't get enough of it. And it's through the word of God, through the declaration of these great promises and, and the telling of the very simple narrative of God's plan of salvation is by that that men and women are awakened and they are moved toward God. The second factor in, in God's electing calling these verses that Paul told us about is that the gospel came in power. And that's because it is not only words, but it is the word. As John 1.4 tells us, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because church stories can be compelling, but nothing is more powerful than the truth. And the story we have to tell is true. It's real. It's compelling. It's gripping. Because it is not mere legend or myth. You know, Jesus' birth is more than just a beautiful story that entrances people once a year and helps them forget about the bleakness of winter. Jesus actually did grow up and live out his adolescence and adulthood. He really did move among men and women in the world. And he really died. He died a felon's death on the cross. But he really rose from the dead and he really ascended into heaven. And when the Thessalonians heard that and believed it, they sensed the power of it in their hearts and they were actually changed. And they were different. Because as Paul said, the gospel call came by the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It came with the power of God himself actually ministering to the deepest needs in human life and empowering them to share the gospel and do the work of the kingdom and to fight the good fight of faith, even if they receive the word in much affliction. Because we can do it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And we do it as Pat just beautifully sang for us, as we wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Isn't that a great promise? Isn't that a great promise? You know, the question was posed once, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And so having these great and glorious promises from 1 Thessalonians, that's the question I want to leave you with today. What would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? And I'm going to assume for the sake of this message that I'm speaking to believers and that you already know that you are among the elect. Or maybe you're just today beginning to realize that you're among the elect. And you know that the Spirit is changing you and shaping you and molding you into the image of Christ. And you, and you, you find yourself more and more drawn by His electing love. And so now, all that remains is to ask yourself, where do you go from here? What, what good work has Christ laid out for you to accomplish? What, what battle has he called you to engage in? What dreams for the kingdom has he placed in your hearts? Because if we are truly waiting for his return and, and we know that he wins in the end and that we are predestined to escape the wrath to come upon this world, whether, whether we escape it by our own death and entrance to heaven or by his second coming, what are you willing to attempt for Christ? What do you have to be afraid of? And so, so until then, until we die or until Christ comes back, let's be making sure that we, like those Thessalonian believers, have a work and a witness in this time and in this generation that echoes out from here and that our faith in God has gone forth everywhere. 
so that we need say nothing in our own defense, but lay everything we do at Jesus' feet and do it confident in his promises. Because church, you were made for this time and this place. And yes, things are gonna be hard, but the Lord is on your side. And he intends to bring you through it for your good and ultimately his glory. Because church, the Lord loves to show his faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. All the way back from that Thessalonian church down to Fairview and Zephyr Hills. So walk in faith this week. Have joy. Don't be bitter and complaining, but be imitators of Christ and be an example to all the faithful. And brothers and sisters, may the God of faith crush Satan's head under your feet. Amen. Amen. God and Father, we thank you so much that you have called us. You have called these particular men and women to be here in this time and in this place. Help us, Father, not to lose sight of that as the, the days are, are weary. All of us are facing so many things, Lord, so many burdens, so many health issues, uh, issues of loss of those that we love financial stresses, stresses in so many areas. But Lord, you placed us here in this time, in this place. Uh, and so we trust in you, Father, claiming those promises that you delivered through your apostle, uh, trusting, Lord, that we are among those that uh, you have a work to do. In. And so we're going to go out this week in faith, thanking you, Father, for your love, thanking you for your grace, thanking you for our redemption through your son. Uh, and Father, just looking for those works that you've laid out for us. We thank you for all that you're about to do in and through us in Jesus' name. Amen.